our ongoing meditations in the evening through this wonderful book of history in the Old Testament. So let me read all 22 verses for us. If you don't have a Bible with you, I invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles. You'll find the text tonight on page 228. But let me begin in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 4, reading to the end of the chapter. And, and once again, do listen as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord made it into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have sought to be to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of the Lord. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. And now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. About the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod. 
saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of the Lord had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us by your word, that it is perfect, that it is powerful, that's trustworthy, that you breathed it out for our instruction, for our training, our reproof, our correction, that we might be fully equipped as we seek to serve you and equip us in this way, that you be glorified in our lives this week, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, One of my earliest preaching influences was a minister who, during the week, he led a missions organization. And then on the weekends, he was an itinerant preacher. And as the years of our relationship passed, we did lots of ministry together. We went on a few different mission trips down to Mexico. We did numerous student evangelistic campaigns and led various organizations in the city and for a particular moment in time, he actually served as the interim pastor at the church where I had formerly been leading as a student pastor. And as I got to know him more, and as I heard him preach more, in all kinds of different places, I realized that like many itinerant preachers preachers before and after him, he had very similar illustrations and exhortations he would use, no matter the sermon, no matter the location. They always seemed to come out all of the time. And one of his most famous exhortations, or at least most frequent exhortations, was warning a congregation to which he was preaching to not be like an Ichabod, to not have Ichabod written across the doorposts of the church. And I always found that rather interesting, not least of which is because so often I was with him doing this corresponding student ministry and that mention of Ichabod written on the doorposts of a heart like a good old revivalist would often say, it would just fly right over the heads of the students because they would have no idea what Ichabod meant. They had no idea the story to which he alluded, which is, of course, a story before us in our text tonight. It's a name before us tonight that just simply means the glory is gone. So all I hope to do in our time tonight is to help you understand this theme of the glory is gone and understand exactly what it was that Israel was missing, lessons they weren't learning, which meant, quite quickly, the glory departed from the land. Now, we left off in our study of 1 Samuel three weeks ago by looking at chapter 3, and there was a, a noticeable optimism that came at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3. You might remember how the story opened. There was no frequent vision in the land. That's an Old Testament way of saying the word of God was not coming to God's people. And he spoke into that quiet. He spoke into that darkness by calling forth this young man named Samuel to be a priestly prophet, to again speak God's word to his people. And Samuel began to speak with such faithfulness And evidently such fervency that you'll notice the first verse of our chapter simply says, the word of Samuel, it came to all Israel. So as as the chapter opens, it has a noticeable note of optimism. Finally, at long last, God's word is permeating the land. But strikingly, it's as soon as the word comes into the land, that almost as immediately the glory of God departs 
from the land. And you can almost trace out this departure of God's glory from the midst of Israel in this moment in redemptive history through Samuel's ensuing absence from the narrative. Come to verse 2 of chapter 4, all the way through chapter 6. So it's not until chapter 7 that he shows up again. Samuel departs from the scene. He's altogether absent from Israel's life. And perhaps, not coincidentally, God's glory is absent as well because his word is no longer present among his people. As the literary light of Samuel goes out, such is the glory of the Lord as a light that departs from the land. And so I want you to see this glory that leaves the land under two simple lessons. Because you may have noticed as I was reading the passage, the chapter has two simple halves. So there's two lessons I want you to learn. Lessons that Israel did not learn. Lessons that because they didn't learn, uh, eventually a child is named. The glory is God. Gone. Ichabod is written across the doorposts of Israel. So here's lesson number one. The Lord's presence cannot be used. The Lord's presence cannot be used. You'll notice again, children, as verse one opens, that we're told Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now, this time in the ancient Near Eastern geopolitical realm, the Philistines, they occupied this kind of coastal region of Palestine, and it was five city-states that made up this rival nation to Israel. They were the most natural military opponent to Israel at the time, and so it's why so frequently throughout this book you'll find the Philistines, the Israelites, warring against each other. And the verse goes on to tell us that the Philistines encamped at Aphek, Uh, That is not too surprising that they're camping there because it's in and around the vicinity of Shiloh. And we've already learned by this point in 1 Samuel that that Shiloh is, or Aphek is quite clear in its proximity to Shiloh. And Shiloh is where the Lord's house is. And so it makes altogether a sense in the ancient Near Eastern's field of battle that they would try to strike against Shiloh because it was there that was the center, the source of Israel's national identity at this time. So if you can demoralize Shiloh, you can demoralize Israel. Even further, it's probably likely that the Philistines thought by striking against Shiloh that they would demonstrate that their pagan gods were supreme over the God in Israel, namely Yahweh. So it's not surprising that they're camped there, the Philistines at Aphek. But it is somewhat ironic that you'll notice the Israelites are encamped at Ebenezer. If you've heard that, name before, you probably associate the name Ebenezer with what comes later on in this story, which is after the Philistines are defeated in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Samuel takes a rock, names it an Ebenezer because it just represents a rock of help. But the reason it's ironic here is because God is no rock of help for his people. You notice in verse 2, the battle commences and Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. The leaders come back from the defeat. They begin to do their evaluation. They begin to do their analysis. And they ask a very wise question. You'll notice in verse 3. They say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And you'll notice the leaders in, in Israel, they have very good theology, don't they? They have a rich understanding of God's sovereignty. It's not as though the Philistines are ultimately responsible for this defeat as much as it is Yahweh has defeated us. So they're asking a good question. 
And so often it's true, isn't it, that when we come across things that strike our paths and enter our way in each and every day, we ought to ask the question, sometimes even in moments of frowning providences, why has the Lord brought this my way? There can be a danger, can't there, of asking that question if the Lord's word is not its lamp and light for your feet, because you might go wrong in how you would answer that. And that's actually what happens with Israel in this moment. What they end up doing is asking the right question, and they give the wrong answer. And the reason they give the wrong answer is because they don't seemingly have any interest in what the Lord's word might say to answer the good question that they're asking. Why has the Lord defeated us today? What would have been much better is going to God's commissioned servant, Samuel, and asking him, why is it that the Lord has defeated us today? But evidently they had no interest in asking God's appointed priestly prophet, why is it that the Lord has defeated us today? Because if they had been listening to Samuel, what they would have heard is something that he had said back in chapter 3 where he had heard from the mouth of the Lord that God was getting ready to do something in Israel that would make the ears of all who heard it tingle. And if you know that part of the text, it was namely the judgment that was going to fall on Eli's house that would cause all those who heard it to have tingling ears. And however difficult it would have been for the Israelite leaders at this time to understand how a defeat before the Philistines would actually lead to God's promised punishment falling upon Eli, it may have been difficult to make that connection, but surely if they were listening to the Lord's word through his appointed servant, they would have understood it. But notice just how wrong their answer goes. So they've asked the right question, but look at their answer at the end of verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now kids, you can think about it, can't you? Why is it that they're so interested in bringing the Ark of the Covenant of all things into a battle? So do you know even what the Ark of the Covenant is? It was that symbol, wasn't it, at that time in Israel's life and history of God's presence in their midst. It was this most sacred piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle inside of the Holy of Holies where God met with his people on which sat the mercy seat. It was in the shape of a footstool representing God's rule, his authority, his sovereignty, and judgment. And they, they seem to say, if we bring the ark into the battle... We're guaranteed to win because the ark can't be lost to a pagan people. Therefore, let's bring the ark into the battle. Students, if you think about it with a little bit more unbelieving, crass accuracy, they treat it like a rabbit's foot. If we just bring this, it's going to work. If we just bring this, it has to work. If we just bring this, God has to do what we want, is what they're saying. But they're going to understand soon enough, aren't they, that the Lord's presence can't be used. You know, even in commenting on this passage, one scholar, I think, rightly says, quote, we could characterize religion as human attempts to harness God's power. Uh, you might consider your own life and think, well, I'm not bringing this divine symbol of God's presence along my way throughout the week to get what I want. But have you ever considered how perhaps your ordinary life of devotion to the Lord maybe is little more than external demonstrations of religion, all in hopes that if you do that, God will have to give you what you want? 
That if you do this, God will have to satisfy your ambitions. That if you pray that, God will bring about your fleshly desires. So often external religion can be something that's little more than just mere superstition at its core. And you see, even in the nation of Israel's experience here, it begins well enough. You look at verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It's all reminiscent of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. In comes the ark, up goes the shout, surely then comes the defeat. But of course, the defeat comes by way of the Philistines conquering Israel. You notice verse 10 and 11, the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, it should have been striking if they had been paying attention to the Lord's word that it was these two sons of Eli, these two priests that brought the ark into the battle, Hophni and Phinehas, because the Lord had only just recently prophesied through Samuel that Hophni and Phinehas, because of their contemptible worship practices in Israel, well, they're going to be judged for it. And here are these men bringing God's presence, as it were, into the battle, demanding that God accede to their superstitious religion And they're learning that the Lord's presence cannot be used. And of course, their death in verse 11 leads us to the second lesson, which is the Lord's word cannot fail. Because you see in verse 12 through 13, what we find out is that this Benjaminite comes running back from the battle into Shiloh. We don't know exactly how long uh, that would have been, but certainly of some distance that's close enough to get there quickly, but long enough for him to be utterly tired when he arrives. He brings news of the defeat. All the city is in an uproar. It's important for us to notice in verse 13 that Eli, this old priest who had judged the nation for 40 years by this point, he's seated in the place of judgment because the text tells us that he was on his seat by the road watching That was a normal place of judgment in ancient Near Eastern cities, the place where uh, matters of justice were decided, and in somewhat of a divine irony of God's judgment upon Eli, his seat of judgment becomes the place of God's judgment upon Eli. Because you'll notice what happens. He comes to this young man, or this young man comes to Eli, verse 16. Eli asks, how did it go, my son? He says in verse 17, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people, your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And you'll see, as soon as he mentioned God's ark, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. And it's actually this living fulfillment of this prophet-like song that Hannah had sung in chapter 2 of this wonderful book when she talked about the proud are going to be humbled. Those that are raised up are going to be made low. It actually has this language of fat kings are going to be toppled over. And here is Eli finally succumbing to the Lord's punishment just as the Lord said he was going to punish Eli. Hophni is dead. Phineas is dead. Eli is dead just as the Lord's word said, would happen. And surely that's meant to be a a warning to someone in the room tonight, if not more than a few of you in the room tonight, 
that the Lord's word cannot fail. When he promises punishment and a penalty of eternal wrath falling upon those who would oppose him, reject him, not believe in him, you can trust as surely as this word fell on Eli's house, it will fall upon you. Of course, these lessons they didn't learn, and so the glory is soon going to be gone, even in this child named Ichabod. Because you'll see as the text ends, uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, when this news strikes Israel, she's pregnant. She goes quickly into childbirth. She's going to die as a result, but you'll notice what she names the child before she dies. Verse 21, she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, that name there, Ichabod, simply means in the most literal form, no glory. The glory is gone. They thought they could use God's presence. They didn't trust God's word. So the glory is gone from Israel. I came across um, an article earlier this week that was doing something of a anniversary-like analysis of a very well-known sermon that came in England, actually, a little over 80 years ago. And it was a sermon that C.S. Lewis preached in a chapel in Oxford, the nation of England, you might know at that time, was in the throes of World War II. As sometimes these things so often go in times of war, there was a an earnest interest in spirituality. So he rose on this special day to preach a sermon at this Oxford church. And it was said at the time that it was one of the largest gatherings of people ever to hear a sermon in England, which sounds altogether hyperbolic to me for a variety of different reasons. But you need to know that there are people gathered throughout the land to hear this sermon from C.S. Lewis. And it's a sermon that has simply come down to us in all kinds of powerful ways, not least of which is because of what the title communicates. He took his title from a text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he simply called it The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. Some of you may have heard before that in Hebrew, the words for weight and glory share the exact same root. And I want you to understand how that's even working itself out in this text today in two brief meditations, and even exhortations here at the end. I want you to see, first of all, as we begin to close, that you need to see the danger of glory stolen. The danger of glory stolen. And it may sound a little bit odd for us to think about it in this way, but the text is actually at pains to help us understand Eli was fat. Notice the end of verse 18. You see, he was broken and he died. Why? For the man was old. And heavy. Now, why, children, do you remember, is Eli so heavy? What was he doing? He was fattening himself on the fatty portions of the sacrifices, the fatty portion that belonged to God alone. What was he doing? Stealing glory that belonged to God. He had gotten fat physically on glory that belonged to God. However heavy he might be physically, there was no heaviness spiritually. And for the glory that was stolen, God judged him for it. You do need to see the danger of, of glory stolen. 
You might know your Bible well enough to know all of these occasions and stories throughout Scripture where someone steals God's glory. And inevitably, what always happens? God's judgment falls upon them. Perhaps you need to consider along the way this night how you might be stealing glory from God in talents He's given you, in possessions He's given you, in relationships He's given you, abilities He's given you. There's great danger in stealing glory from God. Secondly, lastly, you need to seek the glory that has been shown. Because if you just turn a page, perhaps, in your Bible, maybe two pages in your Bible, you would get to the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 7. And you'll see it's then, at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 7, that Israel repents before the Lord. What's easily missed in the course of the sweep of a page or two in your scriptures is that 20 years pass in Israel's life. There's no earnest seeking after the Lord after the glory has departed from the land. All the majesty and splendor, the glory, the power, and the joy that belong to God's presence in their midst, they could care less for two decades that the glory had departed. And I hope tonight you might leave here not waiting 20 years to seek after God's glory. Because the great news that's come to us in Jesus Christ is people like you and me that are quite good and are quite capable And consistent in stealing God's glory. Uh, We have known the mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. He who is the radiance of God's glory. We have seen his glory, the Gospel of John says. The glory is the only son of the Father. In another place, the Apostle Paul says, It's through the preaching of Jesus Christ that the knowledge of the light of the glory of God shines forth in the face of Of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go seeking Christ's glory somewhere else throughout the world. You have him revealed to you tonight. He's not absent from our midst. The question is, will you be the kind of person who at the end of your life, Ichabod is written over the doorposts of your heart, for the glory is gone and will be forever. Or you be the kind of person over which the doorpost of your heart is written, Emmanuel. For the glory is here because you have sought the glory that's found in God's only Son. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have revealed your love for us in Christ Jesus, that Your glory is made visible in your beloved Son and even it's made present to us tonight through your word and spirit and help us to be a people that knows what it means to seek that glory that we so desperately need. The glory of your grace and mercy revealed in all of its full perfection in our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.